Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramania show. I'm Rupa Subramania. Uh, thank you for tuning in once again. It's great to have you back. It's now just over three years since the world plunged into the COVID-19 crisis and the harsh pandemic policies that were put in place by many governments around the world, including here in Canada, uh, measures such as harsh lockdowns, masking and social distancing requirements, and of course, the vaccine mandates. My guest today is a prominent voice who has come out as a critic of such policies. Gabrielle Bauer is a medical journalist and has just published a book called Blindside is 2020. And it's a real honor to have her on the show to discuss her book. Gabrielle, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a real honor to have you uh, on my show to talk about your new book, uh, Blind Sight is 2020, uh, published by uh, Brownstone uh, Institute. Uh, for those of you uh, tuning in, I encourage you all to get a copy. It's about the pandemic, uh, you know, what went wrong, and, um, and, uh, and it's a real honor to have you on the show, Gabrielle. Um, I'll show you the book here. There it is. Blindside is 2020. There, there you have it. Um, so, uh, Gabrielle, let me start by asking you. So three years ago, much of the world, uh, with the exception of countries like Sweden, went into harsh lockdowns. And soon we'd be facing uh, harsh uh, vaccine mandates and mass mandates and other restrictions uh, on our individual liberties that were unprecedented in peacetime. Um, given your background as a medical journalist, uh, what motivated you to write Blindsight is 2020? Ah, well, it's a long story, and I guess an organic story. Um, when the lockdowns hit, uh, I was in Brazil visiting friends, uh, and that was a whole story in itself, getting back to Toronto. But basically, from day one, and I literally mean day one that the lockdowns were announced, I had a, a visceral recoil to the whole thing. And I spent the next three years trying to understand it and trying to connect with like-minded people and, and really trying to get deep into, you know, why did this bother me? Why were all my associates and friends and colleagues, why were they so gung-ho about this? More than gung-ho, why were they so militant? Why were they so eager to shame any dissenting views? You know, what was going on? Was something wrong with me? You know, I briefly wondered about that. You know, why am I not on board with this? And so this took me on this journey, completely unexpected journey. Uh, you know, I never, I mean, I was 63 when this happened. I'm 66 now. So I'm kind of in the demographic that you would expect to be, oh, you know, to want the protection. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't want this type of protection. It, it, it really did not sit well with me. And so I felt a very strong need to connect with like-minded people, both professionals and lay people. Um, I ended up um, joining a Reddit group called Lockdown Skepticism that's still active with 55 plus thousand people, and then eventually forming a Toronto group that we call QLIT, Questioning Lockdowns in Toronto. And we had um, a very active WhatsApp group, and we had meetups, and somehow this was this was vitally important because I, I felt so unmoored and so alienated, like what was going on with this world and why were people okay with this? Um, so 
eventually I, and I read and read and read and took notes and, you know, I had no idea I was going to write a book and kept links and all that stuff, but it, it all kind of coalesced once I started writing for the Brownstone Institute. And then um, I think they were happy with the quality with of my writing. And, and then I pitched a book to them and they uh, agreed to publish it. And so that's what happened. And it was published earlier this year. And it's kind of a different book. I've read a lot of pandemic books too. And um, I can talk about that later. This one is, is a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. Um could you could you explain to us um, this what I find the somewhat enigmatic title of your book? Um, I know what it means to be blindsided, but what do you mean by blindsight, uh, which, which seems to be a coinage uh, of yours? Yeah, I, I mean it's a play on hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. That's the so blindsight is I guess intended to mean lack of hindsight. So instead of having hindsight. Um, you know, the world had blindsight, it didn't see properly. Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. 2020 is also a pun because it's the 2020 vision, but it's also exactly. year yeah. 2020. So it's kind of a double pun, I guess. Yeah, well, no, it's it's a very interesting title. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in your book, in your book, you're very, um, obviously very critical of uh, uh, um, the mantra that we kept hearing, follow the science, follow the science, uh, trust our experts. Can you can you explain why this was absolute nonsense and why and why science per se uh, doesn't give us a singular um, message uh, on what our response to the pandemic ought to be? That's um, so true. That's so true, and so few people realize that. Yeah, the science is contested, right? And we were yet we were fa uh, fed the singular narrative by our political leaders, scientists and the media. Well, it's it's not just yes, obviously, that's part of it. Science is contested and constantly evolving. That's a part of it. But another part of it, kind of a more philosophical part is science is not prescriptive. Mm. Science does not tell you what to do, even if the science is perfect, even if we knew exactly, you know, what's going to make the virus spread more and spread less. That doesn't tell us what to do for humans. Um, science, you know, tells us what is, not what we ought to do. And what we ought to do depends not just on viral propagation properties on air or areas under the curve or anything like that. It depends on what's best for humanity as a whole, you know, mm. and that takes psychological, economical, um, social, historical, spiritual, all those considerations into account. So, you know, the, the way I say it, briefly is what's best for the virus is not necessarily what's best for humanity but there was this tacit assumption that it, whatever the science you know says we should be doing to stop the spread or eliminate the virus is what we should do as humans and, and the two things are not the same not necessarily yeah. the same yeah no absolutely and um you know um scholars such as Jay Bhattacharya, uh, whom I've had uh, on the show as well, um, you know, he's been very critical of uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, uh, consistently critical on the negative impact of lockdowns and school closures. And, uh, and you know, and of course, as a scientist, he was um, uh, seen as uh, as a dissenting voice. He was seen as beyond the pale. Um, <laughs> I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting him actually in person. And I'm yeah, no, he... 
he is wonderful and he's incredibly encouraging and supportive of other dissenting voices and um you know and is an incredibly down-to-earth person as well um could you and you know he helped set up the great barrington declaration could you tell us about the significance of the declaration and the and the harmful effect of lockdowns uh well it was interesting because um well, when the when I first found out about the Great Barrington yeah. Declaration, the, the day that it was, you know, October fourth, the very day, I, I signed it right away, and a lot of people signed it. And then the signatures, you could just see them because I followed the the count of signatures. It sort of went along this, you know, very steep curve, and then it just petered out very suddenly because what happened was suddenly the mainstream media got a hold of it and started lambasting it, maligning it, and then people stopped signing. So mm. it was initially for the first few days really popular. A lot of scientists and lay people were really on board. And then it just stopped. As I say, it got so smeared, so unbelievably smeared in the mainstream media. But what's also interesting is before the Great Barrington Declaration, there were a lot of similar open letters from various governments uh, or from various, you know, stakeholder groups to governments, you know, I think in Belgium and Austria and Israel and France, I can't remember all the countries, but I remember in that summer of 2020, there were a lot of other grassroots groups in countries that were just, they were saying, wait a minute, this is crazy. The world mm. has gone nuts. But for some reason, those other um, letters did not gain traction. And the Great Barrington Declaration did, even though it was slammed, you know, it got the world's attention. So I think in that sense, it was a real success, even though the recommendations were ultimately not followed. It still got the world's attention and it changed the conversation. It did. And it's uh, it's unfortunate, you know, as you point out, uh, you know, you saw a lot of people signing uh, signing on to the declaration and then it just petered out because people, um, you know, uh, some of these uh, scientists and uh, uh, other experts uh, just perhaps were just afraid to attach their name to something that was seen as um, controversial or anti-science or, you know, and, and they were, you know, they would have been publicly shamed. I mean, what, you know, what do you, what does that say about the state of academic freedom, um, you know, independent thinking, um, especially when it comes to the scientific community, because if dissent is not, um, appreciated there if, if 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 you know if, if critical thinking is not encouraged I, 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 there what hope do we have of 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 this happening in other disciplines in other areas of our life lives absolutely i think what happened and i talk about that a lot in the book because my book yeah. is less about science than about the philosophy and the morality i think there was this this moral cloak that descended on the whole thing you know this sort of stay home, save lives. Um, mm. And this idea that if we even think about letting some infection happen, if, if we don't just focus on suppress, 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 maximum suppression, that, that somehow um, we are, you know, doing something morally wrong. And, and that was very powerful. And, and this, and this, and people latched onto that, I think, the mainstream latched onto this idea of this moral outrage at the idea that there could be a scientifically sound policy that involves, that does not involve maximum suppression, you know, that involves a balance between letting some infection happen in order to build some population immunity 
and protecting the vulnerable. You know, I, I think there was, as I say, this, I could sense the Overton window of morality just shifting with COVID like crazy. And you couldn't talk about these things. I mean, I know it because when I tried to talk about any of it online, like I got insults, the likes of that I'd never seen in my entire life, you know, being called. And this was par for the course. Anyone, as as, uh, Jay will tell you as well, I mean, he got death threats. Anyone who who dared to question. I think, again, there was this this group think this sort of outrage, moral people just got themselves worked up into this moral lather such that you could not have civilized and sane discussions about any of it. We sort of forget how it was now, but it was pretty bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that kind of um, 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 behavior has uh, manifested itself in, uh, sure, the pandemic is behind us to a large extent, but it's manifested in other areas of our lives. Like, you know, I mean, I've, I've interviewed um, guests uh, who have, um, you know, who, who oppose gender ideology, for example. And I know when they when they speak out and, you know, I, I just interviewed a detransitioner, a very prominent detransitioner from the U.S. this morning. And uh, she's been ostracized and, uh, you know, and, and she's only 18. And it's, it's incredible how uh, young people like teenagers, people in high school are being canceled and publicly shamed and derided and bullied by. Um, there's, there's no space for nuanced discussions. It's, it's, no. And I'd never experienced this. As I say, I was 63 when this started. No one had called yeah. me a, a sociopath or a mouth-breathing Trump tart or a village yeah. idiot before. And then oh, that's, you know, in 2020. Those, those are the uh, insults that I received. I mean, what do you what do you think was going on here? I mean, I've asked this question to several people I've interviewed, uh, you know, on what went wrong with, you know, and how we handled the pandemic. And um, fear, obviously, was an important component. Um, you had, uh, a, you know, authorities um, who latched on to the idea that they could propagate this fear uh, as much as possible. The media had a role to play. Uh, I mean, the media saw its role as, um, you know, as being moralistic, pushing this moralistic line uh, uh, on the rest of us. Uh, and you had a scientific community that was a- a- advocating for, um, you know, not, not the entire scientific community, but those those uh, scientists advocating for a zero COVID policy. Obviously, their goals were in line with a, a governments who want more control, you know, who want to e- exercise more control over our lives. So it was like the perfect storm, in a sense, or the perfect meeting of three different things happening here, which... I believe, uh, you know, led to this unfortunate situation where any kind of dissent was seen as uh, uh, sacrilegious and, uh, you know, and, and, and enough to, um, uh, you know, ostracize you. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I know that there are some people like, you know, the Brownstone Writers Community is a better, very heterogeneous group. Um, you know, we communicate a lot by email. And there are some people who are... I hate to use the word conspiracy because the word has been kind of overused and misused. But there are some people who are more inclined than I am to suspect um, sort of planning or malfeasance from the very beginning. For that, uh, that to me, that's a stretch. That has always been a stretch because it's not just in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in Canada. This happened. This happened all over the world. And the idea that there's just a few puppeteers kind of getting all these politically, uh, you know, and economically disparate countries with different goals 
to do the same thing. To me, it's a stretch. Klaus Schwab, Klaus Schwab and the, the World Economic Forum. Yeah, no, I, I'm no fan of that organization or Mr. Schwab. And I do think that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I think they do have uh, uh, nefarious objectives. And I, but, you know, I, I'm not, um, you know, I, and I try to tell people that, you know, this grand conspiracy of this one guy sitting in the Swiss Alps, getting together all of these people and like he's, you know, like the uh, Bond villain or something, just seems a bit of a stretch. Yeah, for sure. But, but I agree that there was certainly malfeasance along the way. Yeah. And certainly yeah. the idea that, you know, there was a crisis and so um, uh, political actors who wanted greater control saw the opportunity to to grab it you know and, but I, I to me the whole thing is kind of explainable with the two um, psychological forces that I discuss in chapters two and three of my book which is fear and groupthink mm-hmm. uh, Matthias Desmet of course uh, yes yeah proponent of, of the groupthink you know mm-hmm. which he called um, uh, mass formation mm-hmm. and I, I think that there's a lot of historical precedent for that I mean groupthink is a, is a deep psychological force in humanity and so to me the combination of fear and groupthink and then yes you know a media that instead of pushing back and interrogating government just became their puppets um, that that explains a lot so that's kind of where I land now. You know, I'm willing to change my mind if new facts emerge. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I excuse any of it. I certainly excuse the media for, as I say, for not doing their job of interrogating mm. uh, policy rather than just yeah. going to it. Yeah, no, I, I can tell you I was uh, incredibly skeptical of lockdowns and I argued against lockdowns uh, from the beginning. Uh, but something happened to me when it came to the vaccine mandates. I just, a uh, year and a half later, I just found myself saying that I, we need vaccine mandates. Uh, that didn't last for too long because then I realized, you know, it was just a bad uh, mistake on my part. And, um, and you know, and then since then, I've just been arguing against it. And, uh, well, and it's I'm, interesting. You know, it's very similar to me. I don't think yeah. there's, too, there's too many of us. I was also, when I started out, yeah. um, I, I just saw vaccine mandates as initially not that different from school vaccine mandates. Yeah. You know, and I, I had my kids vaccinated. There was even yeah. more vaccines than required. Yeah, um, never have you know. Definitely, I was. Yeah. Um, but as I interviewed bioethicists for my book, and I, I learned more about the nuances, and I came to realize that yes, this is different because previous vaccine mandates, even the smallpox mandates, um, did not put people in the position of, of having to choose job or job. You know, the the penalty for not getting vaccinated was much more lenient, milder. So. This degree of coercion, I don't think we've ever seen that before. And that's where it really violated basic principles of, of bodily autonomy. And then, of course, we all watched Prime Minister Trudeau go completely nuts with. You know, yeah. And no matter what you, in, in mid 2021, no matter what you asked him, you know, uh, I don't know, how are the Ottawa senators doing? Let's get all Canadians vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> that was his answer yeah. to everything. I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, I do remember that quite well. And um, yeah, I it was, um, um, you know, and it, that 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 um, that the trauma of those uh, who, you know, I, uh, who, you know, refuse to get vaccinated, you know, it's still very visible. Uh, you know, I can see that people are still, 
you know, not over that. And, uh, you know, it's, in, it's incredible how divisive that whole, uh, uh, that, that whole part of the pandemic was. And, uh, um, you know, and, and the most visible manifestation of public discontent um, whether it related to these harsh lockdowns or whether it related to the vaccine mandates, uh, no jab, no job, uh, was, of course, the Freedom Convoy. Um, and you referred to my writing uh, of the convoy uh, in your book. Uh, I, and, and I feel very honored that you do that. Um, you know, I felt at that time living uh, and I still live in Ottawa, uh, that it was an incredibly important uh, moment in uh, for us in Canada um, for various reasons, one of them being that we've typically been very docile and accepting of authority, and now people were finally pushing back in defense of their uh, defense of their liberties. Uh, did you share that sense as well? Absolutely. And one of the things that you said that really struck me, you said, I think it was in another interview that I watched um, that you said that on the surface, this is about vaccine mandates, but it's actually a bigger moment. It is about more than that. And I always felt that very deeply as well. Mm. You know, the ostensible demand was to get rid of the cross-border vaccine mandates. But I, I agree that it was a bigger moment that people were pushing back against, you know, the prime minister's style of managing this pandemic mm. and, and just of managing, you know, of doing politics. And as you say, you know, docile Canadians finally had enough. So it was, it was sort of a delicious irony that this happened in Canada of all places, this convoy. Um, and I, I actually paired you in a lot of the chapters I pair, you know, two or three different people. I paired you with this Rappel Dancho, um, MPP from Manitoba. Absolutely stirring speech um, to the prime minister about how people are are suffering you know that the the people in you know the farmers the pe the workers people are, are just suffering with these policies and that you know we need a plan we need hope we need something it was it was just a dazzling speech yeah yeah no it was uh it was a very important moment and i um you know i feel that um that you know yes i i remember saying that in several interviews that it was much more than vaccine mandates there was something bigger going on here and i was uh, when i first pointed the, pointed it out when the convoy was here i was ridiculed uh for for saying that by establishment journalists because uh they thought it was just like a small little gathering of people and they would just stick around for the weekend and then leave. <laughs> uh, but uh, that 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 uh, wasn't the case, obviously. And um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I many critics of the mandates have felt that the pandemic response was driven more by politics than it was by science. Um, um, I, I, I assume that you agree with this view. And, well, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, I actually yeah. don't believe that there is a purely scientific response because science yeah. is not is not prescriptive. There's mm. always going to be values and politics on both yeah. sides. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, I see that as inevitable. Yeah, uh, there's there's no such thing as a purely scientific response. Um, you know, I think both sides have accused the other side of being driven by politics. But I think that what our side, so to speak, uh, felt was really lacking was an appreciation of the downsides, the, the profound downsides of these policies and how dehumanizing 
they were. And I found yeah. it interesting that religious people, I talk about that as well in mm. the book, How Religion, I feature one, I feature Father Raymond D'Souza, um, who also is a National Post writer. And I'm not religious myself, but I really gained an appreciation for the religious perspective during the pandemic, which I thought was interesting, you know, greater appreciation than before, that, you know, these are people who, they transcend the biomedical worldview, different view of community, what it means. Um, I also watched a video about the Amish, why they rejected the whole COVID paradigm. I mean, to them, a life without communal worship, without connection, it, it literally makes no sense. You know, this idea of, of preserving metabolic life at the expense of everything that gives life meaning just didn't mm. make sense to them. And I, and I really, you know, gained a very, an interesting appreciation for that perspective. Yeah, no, um, you know, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, we're social beings, you know, we're social animals and, uh, and, and for us to live essentially in isolation, um uh and 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 only interact through zoom and uh through technology um you know was uh was was just, was just a bit much very dystopian for sure and uh yeah and it, it seemed to me that some people sensed this and saw it and felt it from the start and others just yeah. didn't and that's why we had this divide yeah. i always felt the divide was not so much about facts and data as about worldview yeah and there's some people who just they completely embrace the biomedical worldview, you know. So, you know, that, that, that those are the kinds of things that I explore in the book and that I came to an understanding of. Uh, and that's why I also feature philosophers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a comedian, a priest, you know. <laughs> No, I, I, yeah, I, 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 it, it sounds like an amazing book, and, and again, I, I encourage our uh, viewers and listeners to get their copy. Um, now, you know, switching gears a little bit, Amer America's COVID czar Anthony Fauci, uh, who is seen as the official response to the pandemic, uh, spanning both uh, the Trump and Biden administrations, um, you know, questions have been raised about some of the ethics behind his recommendation you know what what is your view of um uh, how much blame does he really deserve for the way things played out and in in fauci in a recent interview with the new york times seemed to be backpedaling a little bit uh and i was struck by that um and um yeah i mean how much blame do you think he actually deserves for 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 the way things uh panned out i think quite a lot because he, you know, again, the, the excuse that he and all the other public health advisors gave was, well, our, our job is just to look at public health, not to look at economy or mental health or, you know, uh, socialization or schooling or anything. Our job is to look at public health. And then, you know, governments take our advice and combine it with advice from other disciplines. In theory, mm that should work. But the problem is, is that the governments basically hopped onto that follow the experts, you know, bandwagon. So the ex, so the government was only listening to these public health experts, they did not bring in mm -hmm. experts from these other disciplines to balance the recommendations. And so I think, to me, it seems that someone like Fauci, he had such a huge responsibility. And since governments, the government was just listening to him, I think that somebody with a larger way of thinking 
would have tried to balance his recommendations more, not just focus on this one nail with his one hammer. And mm. to me, he didn't rise up to that occasion. You know, he was he was entrusted with this enormous responsibility, but he still approached it kind of like, you know, with a one-track mind. Yeah. He had an opportunity to do more, you know. Yeah, I mean, the media played a big role as well in all of this, of course, um, you know, basically parroting the official... Uh, narrative uh, and uh, by punishing uh, dissenting views, uh, calling them conspiracy theorists, anti-science, and even worse. Uh, why do you believe, uh, you know, and and you as a journalist, you know, why do you believe that this crucial time uh, that large sections of our media, both in the U.S. and Canada, um, fail so miserably? by taking what politicians were saying at that time, what politicians and officials were telling them at face value and not asking the tough questions and not digging deeper. I guess what comes to mind is, as, as you know, as we all know, we're living in a, a very polarized um, society that's where everyone fears getting canceled. Um, you know, the fear of getting canceled, as you mentioned, for this deep transition, mm. no matter what your age, if, if your views depart from the official party line, there is a serious chance of being canceled, uh, a very real chance of losing your um, your employment and not just your employment, but your future prospects and all these things. And people who have, let's say, family responsibilities or even personal responsibilities and aren't independently wealthy, you know, they legitimately are afraid to, to go there. Mm. And I think that this was one instance where somehow the, the official narrative became so heavy and dominant I really, you know, whether people, whether journalists and media articulated consciously or not, I think they just felt that fear. You know, I felt it too, but I think that it helped me in a way being older, because even though I'm, I work very much full time, I mean, freelance, but I, you know, work seven days a week, it's still different. I, I no longer have young children to support. And if it came to pass that I lost my job or my, lost my clients, I could survive. Mm. So, that's why I don't consider myself superior, you know, in any way for going out and writing essays and writing the book. It's just because I, I had less to lose. And I, I realized that I could lose what I had. But it seemed to me that this was the time. This was a time that I had an opportunity to take a stand. And this was the best time. But I think a lot of people in different, um, at different stages of their lives didn't have that luxury. Yeah. And, and, you know, spe specifically on lockdowns, um, the rationale was based on epidemiological models that totally ignored the psychological, economic and other costs of these policies. Um, and now we have research coming out that sh shows that at least in the U.S. where schools were locked down for longer, kids fell behind in uh, things like math and English. Um, how would you sum up the damage uh, that the lockdowns had on society? And do you, and do, do you think that this generation of young people who started life under lockdowns, you know, are they ever going to recover and and, lead, and have a chance at a normal life? I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. But I think that the yeah. damage is not easily recovered because certainly in school, once you lose a certain amount of ground, you're unlikely to make it up again mm. because you lose the engagement. You you know, you're not no longer plugged in. And then so, you know, it's not like, oh, they can make it up later. That's not how it works. Yeah. Um, and I also thought it was 
so harmful to imply to children that they were responsible for not killing grandma. You know, that whole idea, you know, and I, I discuss that kind of stuff in the book too. You know, if you transmit a virus accidentally, not through malice, you're not killing anyone. You know, this has been happening since time immemorial on a planet that's shared by humans and viruses you are going to get some transmission. Nobody is killing anybody. So this idea that you are killing someone if you give them the virus, I thought that was completely absurd. But again, these these ideas took hold, you know, that, and, and then we told children, well, you know, you have to stay away from this and you have to wear a mask and do this and not socialize because you don't want to kill your grandma. I mean, what a thing to saddle a child with. You know, and, and I felt that that was a change, that that wasn't, that really did represent a change in morality and not for the better, because it's not a morality that's grounded in biological reality. Of course, we try not to hurt people. We try not to infect people, but we cannot guarantee health. We cannot guarantee uh, freedom from biological harm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. Given how damaging, um, all of this has been, Gabrielle, um, I mean, final question to you. Do you think we've uh, learned our lesson? Uh, do you think that whenever the next pandemic or some other apparent emergency arises, uh, you think we'll um, have a similar knee-jerk reaction to the whole thing? Uh, I guess I'm not entirely optimistic and not entirely pessimistic. I think, mm. I think we've probably absorbed something. And I think that maybe I'd like to think the next time there will be a little more deliberation, mm. um, you know, a, a little more um, input from various disciplines. But on the other hand, I think that most people probably are still on board with this way of doing things. I don't know if it's 60% or whatever. I don't think, I think most people are too, according to me, too willing to throw away liberties that really mean so much and, and give our lives everything that they mean. People don't appreciate what that is. And so that's a little disturbing to me. So I think there is a possibility that something similar will happen psychologically, you know, to humanity the next time around. And I think that's why that's one of the reasons that I and the many other people who write articles and books about all this we do it just to, you know, put our drop of water in and, and to keep the conversation alive and so that we don't forget and so that we um, consider all these other aspects, uh, all the downsides of these uh, types of policies. Yeah. Well, uh, Gabrielle, I, you know, on that note, you know, I, uh, I really want to thank you for coming onto the show and uh, I, I encourage everybody to get a copy of your book, Blindsight is 2020. And, uh, I, I, and I really hope that we don't repeat the mistakes of the last three years. Um, like you, I'm, I, I go between being uh, optimistic and pessimistic. It all depends on the day. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we've actually learned some valuable lessons here and that, uh, and that you know, we'll, that there will no long, that, that, that there won't be uh, an infringement on our individual liberties and, uh, and, and, um, and the ostracization of dissenting voices 
practices in the future. Well, I think you're you're helping a lot in, in uh, that conversation, that objective. So well, I'm trying to do my best, but it's not always easy. But uh, but so are you, and that's uh, and it's it's a great. Uh, honor to have been featured in your book and i really hope that you return to the podcast to uh you know in this in sometime in the future to discuss uh your next book perhaps <laughs> all right well thank you so much it was great to uh, to chat with you thank you gabrielle yeah a real pleasure thank you 